This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is The Full Story. What if you found out that you suddenly had many more relatives than you thought? So potentially I've got, you know, a thousand half-aunts and uncles out there and a lot of half-cousins. So, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting, it's interesting. And, and, you know, a lot of potential organ donors as well on the, on the plus side. That's what happened to Jack Nunn. It's a wild story that raises a lot of questions about the regulation of sperm donation. Today, senior reporter Tori Shepherd joins me to tell Jack's story and to talk about the risks involved in going online to find a donor. It's Tuesday, the 28th of February. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Tori Shepherd and I'm a journalist here at Guardian Australia. I would say my round is kind of rabbit holes. I really enjoy kind of finding quirky things and getting into them pretty deeply. And recently I have been down a sperm donation rabbit hole, particularly because there's been this huge growth in people informally donating sperm online. Anyway, I'm deep down this rabbit hole. I was talking to a whole bunch of academics and I was talking to somebody at La Trobe University and they mentioned Jack Nunn. And they gave me a little teaser of what happened with Jack Nunn and I said, get me onto Jack. When I was 21, I had been... I'd been in a relationship with my girlfriend at the time for about three years. Yeah, you know, first love and all that sort of stuff. He told me about a horrible thing that happened to him when he was younger. Uh, When she was uh, 20, she died in her sleep suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, It was a horrible thing for for everyone to go through. you know, I was a murder suspect, all that stuff, had my phone confiscated. It was um, it was pretty full on. He was cleared. What happened was the autopsy showed she had a genetically related thing called sudden adult death syndrome. And I think a lot of people would have heard of, you know, children dying suddenly, but it does actually occur in adults as well. And that kind of turned his life around. It's what got me 
interested in the world of research a bit more, you know, trying to understand, well, what was this? Could it have been prevented? And from there, he got into particularly genetics research. He ended up moving to Australia and doing a PhD in genomics. And I was very aware, having sort of waded into this space because of my experience that I've already shared with my girlfriend dying, that I needed to get a bit more personal experience. And that's, that's when he started trying to find out some more about his own family. So I thought, well, let's get my mum a DNA test. Originally, she wanted to find out some more about her grandfather, um, who was a bit of a mystery, and so they, they did that. And we did find family, and we've tracked down the three brothers, of which he was one, and the island he's from in Ithaca in Greece. And that was really going to be the end of a very nice little sort of DNA story that, that so many people have. And then the surprise came when they actually looked at the DNA. Uh, I encouraged my mum to share her DNA on a website called GEDmatch. GEDmatch was a place that you could download your raw data from different ancestry DNA service providers and, and find other people from different services. And through that, someone got in touch with my mum and said, I think you might be my half-aunt. And, you know, this raised a few questions where my mum thought, well, you know, has, has my biological father been kind of, um, you know, did he have an affair, etc.? And that's, and that's when she found out she was donor-conceived. And this would have been in 1949 in England. You can imagine what a shock it is to find out that you're donor-conceived. Your idea of who your family is could be threatened, your identity could be shattered, and you might start to even, I guess, question who you are and, and how you fit in. And then there's, you know, maybe more prosaic concerns, like what... What is in your genes? You know, are you are you prone to certain diseases? Are there certain risks you hadn't thought of? It informs so much of who we are. And for some people, that's not important. But for a lot of people, that is going to change the entire trajectory of their lives. It was early in the morning and I was still up and I was actually the first person who was able to speak to her about this. And, you know, she said, well, I'm actually in shock. And, you know, my mum doesn't exaggerate about those things. She says, I want you to just read this chain of emails. And as I was going up it, you know, my mind was spinning. For Jack, the crazy thing then was his mother then realised she would have all these half-siblings. So she went on, you know, like an ancestry hookup thing and started finding these half-siblings. Turns out she could have hundreds. And suddenly I was part of one of the largest known single ancestor cohorts on planet Earth, which was quite surprising. So obviously we can't travel back in time and work out exactly what happened with Jack's grandparents, but he does know a bit about his granddad. He knows he was in the Second World War. He knows that he did have a condition for which he was x-rayed many times and that, you know, can affect a man's fertility. So from all of that, what we do know is that then they went along to a sperm clinic. This clinic in London was run by a guy called Bertold Wiesner, who inseminated hundreds of women with his own sperm. If you go on Wikipedia and look at man or men with the most offspring, I think number one, some, uh, uh, well, number one's Genghis Khan. But uh, then, you know, Jack said there's a, I think a Middle Eastern prince who is, who is up there, but in, in the top three is Bertolt Wiesner. Depending on how you do the math, the estimate for Bertolt Wiesner is, is somewhere between 400 and 1,000 offspring. So potentially I've got, you know, a thousand half-aunts and uncles out there and a lot of half-cousins. 
So, you know, it's 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 exciting, it's interesting. And, and you know, a lot of potential organ donors as well on the, on the plus side. <laughs> So this guy, Bertolt Wiesner, I mean, he's, he's, he's pretty famous. There are various people around the world who've kind of come out, if I could use that phrase, as having been conceived using his sperm. He was an Austrian Jewish scientist who lived in Vienna in the 1930s. He had Jewish ancestry but was culturally atheist. And he went to Edinburgh University and did a lot of the science there around fertility and did a lot of research in the area of helping women conceive and certainly did a lot of the science around, you know, when you wee on a stick and you know you're pregnant. He had this sperm clinic in London at a time in the 1940s where maybe fertility issues weren't so well understood and this clinic ran, you know, five days a week. People came in. A lot of them might pay for it. And then there was also a free clinic and where people... I think, assumed that there was a range of anonymous sperm donors, you know, which is how today's clinics might work. Uh, Old Berthold, uh, not really going on a wide search for different sperm and just pretty much used his own. On the one hand, you might say, here's somebody who's helping a lot of women who want kids to have kids. On the other hand they seem to have been misled into thinking that it was anonymous sperm and not the doctor they were seeing who was actually using his own sperm. And you can imagine how not everybody would be cool with that. And if that happened today, he would be in prison. I remember for the first time meeting meeting my family in London. And uh, <laughs> actually, my wife says they're not family, they're just DNA strangers. Um, but, uh, you know... Family are just DNA strangers you haven't met yet. So Jack said while he acknowledges how traumatic it can be for other people, for him, perhaps because he's a genetics researcher, he was actually really excited. Here were people who had the same sense of humour as me, which which I have to admit is really dark and twisted. I, I mean, it's re- it really is warped. And, and I was in a room full of people who I sort of made a bit of an edgy joke and everyone loved it and went even further. So... Somehow, this sense of humour had carried through the genes. Now, I've gone through a lot of my life uh, believing that DNA, you know, it sort of sketches out who you are. But things like personality and stuff, I always thought, well, that's all just learned. And, And really, honestly, my thinking has completely flipped after meeting my extended family. I mean... You just see some. I mean, there, there's one woman in particular who I met who happens to live in Australia. And I remember the first time I met her, I got quite a shock because I just was like, oh, God, that, that looks so much like my mum, the way she speaks, the way she moves. So for me, that was the shocking thing. And so then what he's set up is this really nice feedback loop between his personal experience and his professional research, which keeps coming back to that central theme of it's your DNA. It's your identity. It's your history. And you should have agency over that. We've got this new frontier to understand ourselves that is empowering people all around the world who previously couldn't look into their own DNA to to explore things, including ancestry, but not limited to also things like the variations in their genome, which may or may not increase or decrease risks of certain diseases or even well-being. So after Jack's story, 
kind of blew my mind a little bit, I guess, coming back a little bit to that broader sperm donor issue. It's I, So it's different with Jack. You know, it was decades ago, different system, different country, and yet some of the similar broad parallels are there. More and more you can see these themes about informed consent and knowing where your genes come from and putting rules and limitations on how those systems work so that people can have that knowledge. Next, why are more Australians turning to the internet for sperm donations? Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Tori, before the break, you told us Jack Nunn's wild family story of donor conception. Could this kind of prolific sperm donation happen in Australia today? Well, not legally. I mean, if you donate sperm through the system, through the clinics, then there are caps. It varies depending on where you are. Different states have different limits between five and ten families per sperm donor. And there are good reasons for that, to limit the chances of accidental incest and to prevent trauma to donors to conceive children. So there are ways that it is managed in Australia. But if you go outside the system, well, yeah, I mean, it's technically potentially limitless because there's been this huge growth in people informally donating sperm online. So for example, there is a Facebook page with about 16,000 people where women, mostly single women and lesbian couples can go and find men who want to give them their sperm. Um, A lot of the Facebook sites would probably say, oh, we wouldn't allow someone on here who had had, you know, a hundred families or a hundred kids or whatever, but nobody's tracking and there's more than one Facebook Mm. site out there. So if somebody was determined to have hundreds of kids, then yeah, that through the informal system, they absolutely could. What do you think is driving people to turn away from IVF clinics towards informal sperm donations? So I think there's a whole bunch of factors. The main one is probably the formal system. First of all, there can be quite a long waiting time. And you can imagine if you're perhaps a woman in your late 30s, single or in a same-sex relationship, I, I hate this phrase, but the clock is ticking. You may feel that pressure and you may not feel like you've got the time to wait for a sperm donation. It can also be really expensive. Um, yeah, a lot of those procedures are, I mean, much of it with good reason because they're testing everything and working out the legal processes and so on. So people want to avoid that. And then there are also people who, I guess, don't like the idea of the clinical approach. They think that this kind of informal approach is much better. And, you know, having known plenty of people who did informal sperm donations, but actually with people they know, 
you know, mm. that has been a good experience for them. The difference is people doing it with people they know and people going on Facebook and other social media where, of course, you know, what you see isn't necessarily what you get. There are a lot of barriers to people going through that regulated process. Well, as you mentioned, same-sex couples are some of those that are turning to the internet for sperm donations. What are some of the barriers that they face when they're going through the regulated process in an IVF clinic? There might be a town that only has a Catholic hospital that's not going to maybe help you out with your IVF, right? Or you might not feel comfortable going into what is a very heteronormative space, you know, where a lot of the time I'm guessing the pamphlets are going to be, you know, mum, dad and, and little child. So yeah, And in fact, there have been laws against it until relatively recently, which is where a lot of the informal donations back in the day, sort of pre-Facebook, that's that's how it would happen because same-sex couples were not welcomed Mm. into the IVF world at all. And they may all say now it's it's completely open, but people just might not feel comfortable. That goes for actually everyone, no matter your gender identity or your sexual identity. I can imagine the clinical route could be quite off-putting. And we need to, I guess, be quite nuanced about why people are going into this cowboy Wild West world, understand why they're doing it while still questioning the altruism or the motives of the people who are offering the service. So you spent a fair bit of time looking into this online world of sperm donation. What did you find? There was a lot of things that I didn't know existed. There are some blokes they're not dick swinging. They're actually comparing how many mils they can ejaculate, which to me, I didn't, I didn't know how much the size mattered, but apparently it did. So they show off like, oh, I can get, I can get 10 mils in a, in a single goal if I, it's first thing in the morning and I'm well hydrated. There are also uh, special jocks that you can buy. Cause there's a lot of merch that goes along with this, right? Like it's a whole, whole industry and it's a, yeah, it's a little cowboy. Cause I'm not convinced of the evidence behind a lot of the stuff that's there. So yeah, these ball caller jocks. So they're, Jocks with little pockets that you can put little ice wedges in to um, drop the temperature of your testicles. And it is important that your testicles are a little bit cooler than the rest of your body. That is why they are dangling outside. But I don't, I don't know about the ice block on them. There's lots of like, you know, herbs for virility. And it's got this kind of tone of a bit of chest beating masculinity to me, especially the comparison of the milliliters of donation. Right. So a number of things to consider there when you're deciding on a donor. And once you've picked a donor online, what happens next, Tori? I I imagine there are a number of physical risks involved in collecting a sperm donation from someone that you've met on the internet. Basically, the main options when you have an informal sperm donation is artificial insemination. So turkey baster, you can buy the kit's online, you arrange through Facebook to meet the person when it's the right time for you and they've made the donation and then you, you know, go and do your thing. Uh, There is also what I find slightly disturbing, uh, a few people pushing or preferring natural insemination, which is old-fashioned sex. So the physical risks would be something like an STD. I mean, you are putting somebody else's fluids inside your body um, with artificial insemination. And if you're having sex as well, that expands that risk. There are risks of sexual assault. Uh, One of the experts I spoke to said she had had a call from a woman who felt like it was her last chance to get sperm from a donor that she'd booked a hotel room. She was going to meet him, but she was feeling quite nervous about it, but she was going to go because she thought that was her only chance. And that idea of somebody being 
feeling like they might only have two or three cycles left because they're, you know, they might have endometriosis. They might be just getting older, whatever it is. They just feel like they, they, the window is narrowing. And then somebody says, okay, meet me in a hotel room and this will all happen. You can see the obvious risks in that. We know the risks just with dating on an app. And this is actually committing to meeting somebody and um, exchanging bodily fluids with them. Are there any other risks with informal sperm donation that can affect donor-conceived children? Well, I bet there are many happy stories that come out of the informal sperm donation, but the risks are psychological risks if it doesn't work out as planned and psychological risks for the donor-conceived children um, have been quite well documented about how traumatised they can feel, even if they know their their conception story all along, um, but probably worse if they don't know it all along and find out later and might find out about all their donor siblings. And also the risk of genetic diseases, which again would be screened if you went through a clinic. Right. I mean, IVF clinics kind of act like an intermediary between the donors and the parents, right? So if you're dealing with a stranger who you've met online, there's a lot less protection from these kinds of risks for both parties. And then there's the legalities of donor conception. So things like child support, custody arrangements. I imagine there could be a lot of legal risks involved in doing that kind of thing outside of a clinic, right? It's not entirely clear. Even if you do a sort of, you know, print off a template legal document online that says we agree that, you know, I won't fight for custody and I agree I won't go after you for child support. Uh, There have been challenges in court over some of these and none of it is bulletproof. There's also this really strange loophole in the law. And now I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but somebody really smart explained it to me. It's if the woman who has used a sperm donor, if she has a partner, she is more protected than if she doesn't have a partner. If she doesn't have a mm. partner, she's more open to that sperm donor challenging her for custody. So it's more complicated than just, you know, man meets woman on Facebook. <laughs> Well, what is the answer then? Like, what, what are, are there calls to sort of try to prevent some of these problems happening in the informal market? And I don't even know what, what you could do about it. Really. No, well, by, by definition, it sits outside the regulated system. There are a lot of more nuanced things that you could do. I mean, I think, you know, one of the suggestions is talk to people about the dangers of prolific donation. So talk to women more about the risks and then make the, you know, the, the formal alternative much easier to access. Tori, given all of these potential problems with informal sperm donation, where do you see all of this heading? What I think it's driving towards is a more coordinated national system alongside a push to make it more accessible, more affordable, maybe friendlier, you know, get rid of some of those barriers that are are making people choose informal over formal. And there are a lot of those barriers. So If you fix the system that exists, you reduce the number of people that reject that system to go the informal route. But I suspect that informal donation has been with us a very long time and I think it will continue to the foreseeable future. Mm. I mean, yeah, given the biological, I guess, urge or desire to have children, it sort of feels like there'll always be a black market or uh, for informal donations, right? And there always has been. It's just that it used to be among a circle of people that you knew and now it's, you know, 16,000 people on Facebook.
That was Tori Shepherd, senior reporter for Guardian Australia. You can read her feature article on this phenomenon of online sperm donation at theguardian.com and we'll post a link to the full story page. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Joe Koning, myself and Dan Simo, who also did the sound design and mixing. Our theme music is by Joe Koning and the executive producer for this episode was Miles Martignoni. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.